cool. Turn your Bibles, if you have them this morning, to Mark chapter 6. Now, we were in Mark 6 a number of weeks ago as we talked about Jesus building a team and developing a team. And Jesus actually sent out his disciples into the world to do his mission in the world. And now we're going to come back to a point where the disciples come back to him. A little while back in my life, I got five kids. We were going down to the barn in Smithville. Anybody ever been to the barn? Yeah, it's a great place. There's a salad wagon because, yeah, why shouldn't wagon be or salad be on a wagon, right? But anyhow, you can go down there. You can feed the ducks. It's absolutely fabulous. Why well, I wanted the kids to get to experience feeding the ducks. There's something about having a duck eat out of the palm of your hand, wondering if you're contracting a disease and enjoying that moment uh, as you do that. So, so I had to save quarters because you got to put quarters in the duck, you know, food pellet thing and get, and get your stuff out. So earlier in the day, we'd gone to the store and the kids like, can we get some bubble gum? And I'm like, no, I got to save my quarters so we can feed the ducks. And they're like, oh, okay. So then a little bit later on, we, we, we ended up at a candy shop, and they said, Dad, can we get some candy? I got just, just something small. I know we're going to lunch. I said, no, i got to save my quarters to feed the ducks. And then finally, we end up in the barn itself, and there's some rides, and there's some games that you can play. You can do that thing with the pennies. They're like, Dad, can we do that? I'm like, no, you don't understand. We're saving our quarters to feed the ducks. And finally, one of my kids spoke up and asked the pertinent question, do ducks eat quarters? Sometimes when I read the Bible, I see these moments where the disciples are looking at Jesus wondering if ducks eat quarters. But I have to tell you something. If you read the scriptures and see what Jesus does, especially his miracles, especially his miracles, they're never random. They're not just happenstance. And in this particular case, we're going to do the disciples some justice this morning. The disciples figured out exactly what Jesus was trying to convey. They knew that there were pellets to feed the ducks. And they saw something in one of the most famous miracles of Jesus that was not random and was not a mistake, though they did question whether the Son of God could do math. Let's see what happens in chapter 6, verse 30 and following. It says this, and I'm in Matthew, so I'm going to read off my notes. <laughs> the, uh, the apostles returned to Jesus, and they told him all that they had done and taught. So they're coming back after preaching the gospel and doing miracles, telling him all this great stuff. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place, literally in the Greek, the wilderness, and rest a while. For many were coming and going. They didn't even have leisure to eat. Now they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves, but many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So when Jesus went ashore, he saw this great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, the disciples came to him and said, hey, this is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy them something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. So he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, he said a blessing, and he broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples to set before all the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Now, now, if you just read this on the surface of things, you might look and go, well, okay, that's just a random miracle in the middle of the Bible, something we tell each other in Sunday school and go, wow, Jesus is powerful. 
But there is so much more going on here. Now, we said early on in the study of Jesus 101 that Mark, the early church fathers tell us, was the preaching of the apostle Peter. So we're going to see, if you will, this story that Peter witnessed through the eyes of Peter and, and through the writing of Mark. And there's some things going on here that are incredibly important. So let's start at the beginning and let's work our way through. First, this is Jesus interrupted again. If you've been following along with the book of Mark, Jesus has a plan, and then people show up, and then Jesus, being like a really good guy, allows themselves to be interrupted. These disciples have just gone on this, this huge adventure. They are tired. They are weary. They don't even have time to eat because Jesus' ministry is so big. Jesus goes, let's get away. Let's go to the wilderness. They get in the boat. They start going to the other side of the lake, and, and the Sea of Galilee is, is, is just small enough that people can run around the side and actually beat Jesus and his disciples to the other side. Going from town to town like, Jesus is going there, and this huge crowd awaits him. But what does Jesus do? No, no, not today. Don't have time for you all today. Got to get away with my disciples. Got to teach them some things. We have bigger fish to fry. <laughs> Sea of Galilee joke, and move on. He doesn't do that. doesn't do that at all. He, he has, it says, compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It's one of the famous phrases of Jesus. Jesus uses this throughout the scriptures. In fact, Peter's saying this is what Jesus was thinking when he had compassion on them. He knew Jesus enough. Jesus said it enough. Jesus taught it enough that Jesus saw the people of Israel, the, his, his people, the world, in fact, as like sheep without a shepherd. But that was a famous statement before Jesus even made it. That was a statement from way back in Numbers chapter 27, and it was made by Moses. You know Moses, let my people go, crossing of the Red Sea, Ten Commandments, angry Israelites. You remember Moses. Moses loves the people, and before Moses dies, he looks up towards heaven, and he realizes he's not going to be able to lead them anymore, and he loves these people, and he says, Lord, send somebody after me to lead this people because I don't want your people to be sheep without a shepherd. So God does send somebody after Moses. His name is Joshua. Joshua, which means God saves, or God is salvation. And Joshua is the one that leads them into the kingdom. That's who Joshua is. Interestingly enough, Joshua's name in Hebrew is Yehoshua. Yehoshua, that's how you say it in Hebrew. You're like, he just wants to prove that he knows Hebrew, doesn't he? No, 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 there's a point to this. His name is Yehoshua, but by the time of Jesus, 1,500 years later, the Jews had shortened the name Yehoshua. Do you know what they shortened it to? Yeshua. You did know. Well done. Yeshua, which happens to be how you pronounce Jesus in the Hebrew, in the Aramaic. His name was the same God as salvation. And as Jesus looks at people and says, they're like sheep without a shepherd, what's Jesus saying? I am the successor to Moses. I am the one Moses prayed for. I'm the one Moses prayed for. So Jesus begins to teach them many things. That's the need of the sheep. The sheep need Jesus to teach them something, and he teaches, and he teaches, and he teaches. Some of you might already be checking your watch, wondering how long I'm going to teach this morning, but nobody was checking their watches that day. Wish I could preach like Jesus. So much so that they're not even worried about eating. The disciples begin to worry because they need to tell Jesus that he should worry. Jesus, these people are going to get hungry. It's getting late. They need to go into the surrounding towns and villages. We're in the wilderness. We're in a desolate place. You've you got to do something about this. Send them away. And Jesus says something that's one of his mean statements. Jesus makes mean statements, did you know? He says, you give them something to eat. Could you imagine that right at that moment? 
Could you see like Thaddeus looking at Andrew going, I hate when he does stuff like that. <laughs> you give them something to eat. He's trying to make us feel stupid. I think, yes, stu I do feel stupid. Jesus, not even 200 days worth of wages. A denarius was a day's wage. Not even, not even 200 days wages would pay for all this crowd to eat. Jesus goes, bring me something. Bring me whatever you got. So five loaves, two fishes. And this is what it says. Jesus prayed towards heaven. He blessed it. He broke it. That's in the past tense. He broke it. And then it goes to the imperfect tense. It says, and he was giving it to them. Now, usually I, I, don't, I don't break down the Greek a lot, but this is important. What it's saying is, is that the miracle is taking place in the hands of Jesus. He was breaking it and giving it to them. He was. The miracle is taking place in the hands of the people of God's new leader. So they, they have him sit down. Everybody reclines. They're sitting down. Jesus feeds them. And then it says something incredibly interesting. It says, and all ate and were satisfied. It didn't say everybody got something to eat. It says all ate and were satisfied. That's a very specific statement. In fact, it was a statement that was made in the Old Testament. In Psalm chapter 78, it says of the people of God who were being led by Moses out in the wilderness and all ate and were satisfied. In fact, if you look at the Greek in Mark and you look in the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint, the words match up perfectly. Not only is Peter looking back at the story and saying, Jesus is the one that Moses prayed for. He's also saying, Jesus is even greater than Moses. Jesus has all this huge, expansive people out in the wilderness, and they're hungry, and instead of praying for a miracle, he is the miracle. Jesus feeds us by his own hand. Moses had to pray to God in order to get manna and quail and water. Jesus, Jesus just does it in his own hands and feeds the people. See, he got it. Peter figured out that ducks don't eat quarters. He figured out what Jesus was doing by this miracle. He is, he is equating himself with two of the greatest, if not two of, two of the two greatest leaders in the Old Testament. And he's doing this miracle to show the disciples his nature and who he is and what they should think about him. Of course, the only hole in the story is that Jesus couldn't do math. There were 12 baskets left over. So if we get to heaven and you want to, you know, gently rib the Son of God, you can say, at least I can do math. And again, I don't think Jesus does things at random. And I figure if he can feed 5,000 plus people by just the, his own power and the miraculous nature of his hands, I wonder if he was doing something with those 12 baskets. I wonder if they meant something. We'll get back to that in a minute. Let's think about what we learn about Jesus. Let's, let's think about what Peter learned. What did Peter learn? Remember, because Peter's preaching this, Mark's writing it down for us, and this is a, this is a, this is a, a, a commentary note. Jesus in other places in the Gospels makes this statement. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Here, Peter says, this is what Jesus was thinking. They are like sheep without a shepherd. So he's saying he is the new leader. He is the new Joshua. He is the one who's supposed to lead the people of earth. He's the leader. But what do we learn about his leadership? He leads from a place of love. That's who Jesus is. He's not annoyed by the crowd. He doesn't look at the crowd and go, oh, they're here again. 
We're trying to eat. We fled in order to eat. That's what the Bible says. They can't even eat. No, he feeds them his word all day long. He teaches them all day long. He does this because he has compassion on them. It means his guts were stirred for them. He loved these people. He cared about these people. This is the nature of the new Joshua, the new Moses. He loves God's people. And he wants to lead them to the place where they need to go. He wants to do something in their lives that desperately needs to be done. And so he can be bothered. I've met plenty of people who walk into churches and they are convinced they are convinced that God can't be bothered with them. That, that God's only bothered by the important people like pastors and ushers and welcome team members. That, that God is only bothered by the, by the praying people who can say those prayers in the King James English, thee, thou, and hast. God only listens to those people. No, this crowd is the anybody whosoever will crowd. Anybody who can run fast enough to get to Jesus, Jesus has time for because he loves them. He loves them. We celebrated the greatest demonstration of God's love by celebrating communion today. Remembering that he loved us so much that he would die for us. The shepherd loves us. The problem is, Oftentimes we want the shepherd to love us, but we forget that a shepherd leads us. Jesus' response to this crowd was to teach them many things. What they needed most desperately was to have their minds blown, to have their way of thinking and their way of acting and their way of being changed. Jesus wasn't satisfied with leaving these people where they're at. He didn't just walk through the crowd and touch people on the head saying, I'm the son of God and I love you. I'm the son of God and I love you. I'm the son of God and I love you. That's not what he did, did he? He went through that crowd and talked to that crowd and preached to that crowd and taught that crowd because he needed to lead that crowd to where they needed to go. I love the fact that I have a God who loves me. But even more important to me, at this stage in my life is that the one who loves me leads me. He leads me. And that's the struggle that so many of us have. We want to come into church and we are enamored with the love of God. It's what draws us. We realize that God has something for us, that he loves us, that we, he can be bothered with us. And we like that. But then when we, we just stop a little bit short of having him lead us. I want a shepherd that pats me on the head. But I don't want a shepherd that makes me move. But the best thing, the most loving thing that Jesus can do for you is to teach you and to lead you and guide you into exactly the place that he knows that you are supposed to go. He leads from his love. He leads us into God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is a radically different place than the place that you live today. Will you let God lead you? I have yet to meet the person who has let God lead them who's regretted it. Like, I am so ticked off at God for teaching me what was wrong with me. How dare he have the audacity to work in my life, point out my selfishness and sin, and begin to work in my life so that it got better. I have never had anybody turn around and go, God pointed out something to me, and, and it changed, and, and everybody noticed the change, and, and my wife is happier, my kids are happier, I'm, I'm, I'm ministering to people for the first time in my life. I hate it. Nobody does that. 
Because if you let the shepherd lead you, he will teach you many things. And he will lead you to the place that you need to go. But there's something else that stops us. There's something else that keeps us from fully letting him lead us. And that's the question of satisfaction. Yes, Jesus leads from love, and that's why we can follow him, but can we really be satisfied if he leads us? And this story says yes, that he satisfies the led, that he takes care of those along the way to the new place that they're going. This was the big issue with Moses. If you read the story of Exodus and Numbers, over and over and over again, the people are like, yes, we know that we were miraculously delivered from Egypt. Yes, we walked through the Red Sea on dry land. Yes, God protected us from, from sheer ruin at the hands of the Amalekites. Yes, God gave us manna, but I'm still not sure if he's going to take care of me. Over and over and over and over again. Will God really supply? Will God really take care? Will he really give us the benefits of knowing him? And they are angry at God, and they're angry at Moses, and time and time and time again, the question is, will God really satisfy what I need most? And Peter says emphatically, yes. The shepherd who is the Lord will satisfy you along the journey. He will. He won't lead you in a place of want. In the first service, I said dearth, just because I have a weird vocabulary that I shouldn't use. He won't leave you in want. He won't leave you in dearth. In fact, he wants to bring you into blessing. He wants to give you something that you don't have today. There's this beautiful picture of the Lord as our shepherd and our leader. It, it, you've heard it before, Psalm chapter 23. If the Lord is my shepherd, let's put an if on it. If the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He'll make me lie down in green pastures. He'll lead me beside still waters. He'll restore my soul. He'll lead me in the paths of righteousness for him's name's sake. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If that's not a picture of being satisfied, I don't know what is. That's what happens when you allow God's new shepherd to lead you. Yes, you are led to pasture, and you are led to still water, and you are led to rest. Yes, you don't have any fear in the shadow of death because you know that no evil can befall you so long as you're with Christ. You know what my favorite picture is now that I'm at this stage in my life? My favorite picture of that Psalm 23 is you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. What, I'm going to sit down and recline at a table in the presence of my enemies? And it says, you anoint my head with oil. In the ancient world, that was a sign of hospitality and favor and goodness and God's wealth and his riches. So, so my enemies are all about me. Bad things are going on. Things are out there. And I'm reclining at the Lord's table, enjoying his hospitality. And it says, my cup overflows. My cup overflows. That's a picture of satisfaction, folks. That's a picture that, yes, there are going to be troubles in life. There are enemies abounding. There are things around. But you are at the table of the shepherd, fully satisfied with a cup overflowing. 
going, what harm can befall me? He's right here. He's next to me. I'm at his table. I'm going to tell you today, if you're struggling with this, and I remember the time in my life I struggled with this, will God satisfy me if I trust him more? Yes. Yes. Read Psalm 23. It's not for funerals. It's for you today. It's for you today. Because I am at a stage in my life where, where I looked back at times when I trusted him and he proved himself faithful. I trusted him and he proved himself faithful. And I trusted him and he proved himself faithful. And I can look back even before the end of my life and say, surely goodness and mercy is following me. Because the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me from a place of love and he will leave me satisfied. There is no satisfaction like knowing the Lord, his will for your life, and what happens when you put your trust in him. No satisfaction like it. Nothing that's more balm for your soul and your spirit than when you see God at work because you've trusted him. These people weren't even worried about food, yet God had supplied for them supernaturally. Of course, there's still the problem of the food overflow. There's still the problem of Jesus' fuzzy mask. Why was there more than what was needed? Well, 12 disciples, 12 baskets, you give them something to eat. Twelve disciples, 12 baskets. And that mean old statement, you give them something to eat. Jesus wasn't bad at math. In fact, later on in Mark chapter 8, he goes, how many baskets were left over? They said 12. He also asked the question, when I fed the 4,000, you haven't read that yet, how many baskets were left over? That was seven, which is the number of completion, the number of perfection. And Jesus looks at them and goes, don't you understand? They don't say anything. At that point, ducks are still eating quarters. This is the thing that they've yet to get. But when Jesus dies and rises again, they're going to figure it out. They're going to figure out that there's a basket for each one of them. And there's more people to feed. They're going to figure out that those who are satisfied feed others. Those who are satisfied go out and take the basket full of provision from God and say, come and get something to eat. The work of the deliverer and the kingdom bringer and the shepherd was not done. Jesus is reminding them that I am the shepherd, but you are the shepherds in training. And if you are fully satisfied, fully trusting, fully loving me, go give somebody else what they need now. You give them something to eat. The story of the feeding of the 5,000 is a story of a God who loves us and leads from that love. A story of a God who satisfies those who place themselves within his care. But it is a story that is to remind those who are satisfied in Christ that it is not yet over. They are to go and feed the world. All from the supernatural hand of God our Savior, Christ Jesus, Yeshua. Let's pray.